What is going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com. And today I have special guest Dr. Deanna Mutzel on the line. She is a wizard when it comes to OMAD. She's she's done all kinds of things. We, we dive into her OMAD strategy. We talk about how she got super freaking shredded this past year, what nutritional manipulations she made to do that, how it affected her training, how it affected everything. We talked about uh, how that impacted her hormonal cycle, which is very relevant to any females wanting to get shredded and leaned out for a competition or just life in general. We also talk about uh, carnivore. We talk about... we talk about nutrition with regard to vegetation is it necessary is it not and we dive into parenting styles the importance of having like a you know good solid foundation with regard to how to raise your kids around their diet their nutrition their lifestyle their activities so i really enjoy that part of the conversation we talked about their homesteading operation they've got a bunch of you know chickens they've had pigs they've got all kinds of things so really really truly enjoy the conversation Dr. Deanna Mutzel is just a good friend of mine, and I just love what she's doing in the space. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy. And we are live. Dr. Deanna Mutzel, how are you? Hey, how's it going, Robert? It is going wonderfully well. I appreciate you taking the time and talking with me. Thanks for having me. Such an honor. So I'd love to, there's a lot of things I want to dive into, but before we do, can you just give the audience like a little background on you, what got you in the space and just kind of some of your, your historical background into bringing you into nutrition in the first place? Sure. So I have a history of competitive running in college and um, basically through my own experiences, um, injuries, et cetera, it just was absolutely what got me into nutrition. And um, also I, uh, when I was 10, I had, unfortunately, a sister pass away of a brain tumor. And so quickly, um, our family got really into like health and nutrition. And it was definitely um, a log in the fire for me, you know, at an early age of, you know, why eating is, you know, real food is important. And um, so, yeah, just generally through running and through just, you know, Family trauma is what got me quickly into nutrition. Um, How old were you when that much happened? Life. I'm sorry? How old were you when that happened? I was 10 and my sister was 15. Yeah. Wow, so crazy. I was 10 years old when, you know, we learned we were actually in uh, macrobiotics of all things. So um, the doctors then were telling us at Sig Kids um, that uh, my sister Kelly needed to be on a macrobiotic diet while she had cancer. And so that's a kind of sort of keto in mm-hmm. a way. And um, so our whole family did that so that she wouldn't feel segregated and awkward. And so uh, very young, we were, you know, um, we knew that sugar wasn't good and that um, potentially that was what could make cancer worse. So, yeah, it happened very early for us. Well, it's crazy that that was kind of where the conversation went right off the bat. I mean, usually you hear about people getting cancer and it's like nutrition is an afterthought. Yeah, exactly. It was, um, again, it happened very quick. And, uh, you know, we, I knew enough that uh, processed foods and sugar um, would cause disease. So we had great doctors, you know, way back in our, in our area. I'm from Canada, Ontario, Canada. And so the doctors were out of Toronto, at Sick Kids in Toronto. And so they were um, smart enough to know that sugar was a no-no and not to be giving the kids their sugar <laughs> in yeah. the hospital like they do here. <laughs> so, That's yeah, crazy. it was definitely, yeah. 
So sure. were you pretty motivated at such a young age to dive into it more for your, like, your own preventative care, like not wanting the same thing to happen to yourself? Um, you know, I, I really didn't think about it at the time. I sort of just did what my parents told me to do. But um, through it all, um, I, I guess I, I was a little hypochondriac. I, I thought, oh, shoot, my sister got cancer, so maybe I'll get cancer. So I guess there was a little bit of a fear mm-hmm. um, at the time. Um, but as years passed, um, it just became an interest for me. And um, not only like food, but fitness as well. So, um, you know, we were, I was very active, um, from an early age. And so I guess just my, my own activity and competing in figure skating at the age of four. So early, um, I always just wanted to be healthy so that I could do my best in athletics and it just kind of carried over into more functional nutrition approach, um, as I entered chiropractic school. Very nice. So, Yeah. Do you still skate at all? Uh, no. <laughs> I've always wanted to see where I'm at, but uh, yeah, I did it for 10 years and then moved on into competitive running, um, which brought me into the United States on a scholarship. Very so cool. um, yeah, so it uh, was definitely a great um, you know, initiation for my, my running and, and I became a very strong runner because of the background with figure skating. I lived uh, in Minnesota. For, that's where I was born, actually. So I, I got into skating then, but I never really mastered oh, the whole stopping concept. I just run into walls really fast. And that's, that's a trick. <laughs> I probably would do that too lately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so running. Were you doing more like the endurance type running, or was it more like sprints? What were you doing there? It was more distance. So um, I was kind of middle to long distance. My aim at the time, I ran for the Canadian cross country and track team as well. So my aim was going to probably be around the 5,000 if I went Olympic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just suffered from so many injuries um, because at the time I just didn't know how to eat properly. I was eating real food, but just not enough protein. I'm sure um, overtraining in college, you tend to do that when you're on scholarship. They just run you into the ground like a business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's what got me into chiropractic through my own uh, running injuries. Um, but yeah, it was just, uh, a lot of running, lots and lots of running. And, um, I, I don't run like that now. I jog just more from my brain, but, um, it was definitely, you know, it was a good thing. It got me into the United States and it paid for my college. So yeah, that's okay. awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. So the injuries that you were sustaining in college is what motivated you to get into the, the chiropractic practice. What, like, did you notice a pretty profound, you know, impact in your recovery time once you started implementing that or was it was it noticeable so i was suffering from a low back injury um before canadian nationals uh i I don't remember what year that was and um so what had happened i had seen so many different doctors for the low back and um no one really could tell me what was going on other than just to not run, which was not an option for mm-hmm. me. Uh, so uh, I finally uh, went to a chiropractor. I just thought, you know, why not try? They're kind of quacky, but why not try, right? Mm-hmm. Like everybody else thinks. And um, this chiropractor really changed my life and was the first doctor to really sit me down integratively <clears throat> and take my x-rays, uh, educate me about my body. And even though I left limping out of there, um, cause I had been limping for like months, I really felt like, wow, this is, this made total sense. Um, I'm really excited about this. And, you know, after a few weeks I was pain-free after months 
And um, I just knew from that moment that I was going to be a chiropractor. So do you, I've got a lot of questions here because I've been to a chiropractor a couple times and like, I feel like it's just a a worthwhile thing to do since I'm constantly loading my spine with like, you know, barbell squats and whatnot. But the one that I went to, and I I can't, I don't have any knowledge of this. I'm definitely going to be, you know, picking your brain here, but I went to an upper cervical chiropractor and they basically x-rayed everything. And then they laid me down in this, this chair bed thing. And then they just hit me with a bolt basically on the side of my neck. Very, I mean, it's like the equivalent of just like thumping myself with my finger, not very much pressure at all, but that's the only adjustment that the upper cervical chiropractor line does apparently. Is that effective or is it, does it need to be more like a whole holistic whole body type of adjustment? Well, the way that I practice is definitely whole body approach, um, as well as many other factors. It's hard for me to say, I don't know enough about that technique and why they only focus on the neck. Um, however, in support of that technique, um, cervical adjusting is very powerful. Mm-hmm. And um, many of our functions obviously come from our master system, the brain. So I guess their feeling is that if you really focus on C1, C2, um, the upper cervical, mm-hmm. that you can, that everything also kind of fix itself innately. Uh, my, my thoughts with that are, gosh, I mean, I, I'm just one of those people that like, you just got to convince me, you know, like I, if I'm having like low back pain, you got to touch my low back. (laughs) You just got to do something with it, you know? And I see so many subluxation patterns, um, on x-rays. I take x-rays on most of my patients, um, such as like pelvic rotation. I see rotation in, in the mid back. I see compression, so many different things, osteoarthritis. So, um, what I found that works best is spending more time on patients. Like I generally spend about honestly 45 minutes on my patients. Really? Like I do. Yeah. There's some chiros that spend about maybe 30 seconds to like two minutes, which is fine if you don't have a lot of time in your day and it may work for you. But, um, I really like to kind of figure out what's going on with the body. The body is very complex and I adjust full spine and I use many different techniques. I do, you know, upper cervical adjusting, um, something called diversify, which is basically just traditional chiropractic adjusting full spine. Um, my treatments always look very different. I do a lot of muscle work. So I think muscles are extreme component in adjusting. Um, the more relaxed you can get the muscles, the better adjustment you're going to get and the longer it's going to hold. Okay. So, um, most of my patients get better ex- like very quickly. And, um, also it's important to educate your, your, um, patients on what they can do outside of the office to keep out of the office. You know, as much as we love to see ya, <laughs> it's really important to, to educate on how you can say foam roll and stretch and lifestyle factors and eating and nutrition and so many things that help to hold the adjustments. Cause it's not that easy. It's not like you just like move a bone and everything's fixed and you're, and you're healthy. It's, there's so many different factors, just like with nutrition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it's kind of like an ongoing education um, on, on lifestyle factors and things that people can do. And I think every kind of doctor should be educating patients this way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're taking a holistic approach, which I feel like you know, this is how it should be done. I mean, I went, my motivation for going to that upper cervical, I didn't know what upper cervical was at the time, uh, but I had pulled my, my lower facet joints in my back doing squats. And so my lower back was what was hurting. And he never touched my lower back. And then he shot me, you know, with that little, you know, zap gun a few Activator. times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what does that thing do? 
It's called an activator. And, you know, um, the, there's many things it can do. It, it It's supposed to trigger your nervous system. Um, I, I think it triggers the spinal thalamic tract. Um, I think it can trigger, I'm not sure how it really moves bones, but that's something I have to kind of dive into a look into. I, I use it more for muscles mm-hmm. and it tells me it's more of like a diagnostic tool. It, it basically tells me where somebody has muscle spasm, hypertrophy and where I need to kind of focus. But mine is not just a clicker. It's like, a, it, it's like a motorized. So you, you get like, you know, a numerous clicks within like, you know, 30 seconds versus just a click here and a click there. Gotcha. Um, but again, before I shoot that down, that technique down, I just, I need to learn more about that and, and what exactly, you know, their thoughts are behind that and how, how it works. Is there like it any, could very well work. Yeah. Is there like any good, you know, vetting process you would give? Like if somebody's wanting to get into chiropractic work, find a good chiropractor, like what mm-hmm. should they be looking for when trying out these different clinics to see if this is something that would or should be a long lasting relationship because you know i've only yeah. been to two or three and i wasn't just overly impressed with any of them but i don't even really know what i'm looking for i think what people have to look for and again this isn't just chiropractors this is any doctor is someone who you can really look them in the eye and talk to them um someone who really cares and you can generally tell if someone really cares or if they're rushing you out of the office someone who is willing to go out of their way for you. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, this is just my thoughts. (laughs) Uh, People really need doctors like that in their lives. People that it's kind of like how, how it was back in the day with the family docs, right? Like the village docs. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone who not only just kind of narrow-mindedly like focuses on, Oh, you have this, you know, here's, here's a drug or, I'm going to do this. And, and they don't talk about lifestyle. They don't talk about what to do outside of the office. They don't involve education. I think just someone that you can trust is in your best interest. Yeah. And that can take time to find that because honestly, it, it's hard to find that. It really is, which is why I went back into practice full time. You know, I wasn't, I just recently got back to practice full time um, because I was doing a lot of online, but I really missed it. And I made the goal to be that type of chiropractor, someone who really was just would go above and beyond um, for my patients. And it truly, you know, not only makes me feel good, but people just get better. And so um, to answer your question again, just they do exist. Find someone who is integrative, who's in the know, who's constantly trying to learn, who is humble enough to know that they don't know everything and that they can't fix everything. If they can't, then who to re- they'll re- refer you out. Mm-hmm. Um, I refer my patients out all of the time, all the time, and never in the worry, oh, shoot, they're not going to come back to see me because they always do because they really respect me for doing that. And um, I think those are just key factors. Totally solid advice. Is there like a... And this is probably going to be very individualized, but they're like a schedule at which you should routinely go to a chiropractor like every couple of weeks or, you know, stay on top of it so that it's more preventative, uh, more proactive. Or is it kind of like, you know, once everything's aligned, it's not necessary to come back until things get out of that line. So it's different for everybody. OK. And again, your frequency depends on a few factors. Are you in pain? If somebody comes in and they're in a lot of pain, I sometimes they need to see me 
Um, generally, I don't do more than like twice a week for a little bit, um, if that, because I personally spend a long time on them so I can get them better qu- pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's necessary unless you're in a major trauma, like a car accident, to see somebody like three times a week for six weeks. I think, honestly, that's a lot. Yeah, It, it really is a lot. And, and But if they're doing kind of quick fix adjusting, maybe it's necessary. I'm not sure. Um, so if you're going into a chiropractor for wellness, again, there's so many factors, what you're doing for um, a living, um, your health, um, are you sitting all day, um, at a work desk, which honestly, if you'd get up and move, you probably wouldn't need to see the chiropractor as much if they're educating you to not sit all day long, maybe get a standing desk, watch your posture. Um, so again, the more you're doing outside of the chiropractic office to help yourself through nutrition, through movement, through strength training, you probably won't have to go as often if you're taking care of yourself, okay? Um, That being said, if you've noticed like your body becomes a bit more vulnerable, say, you know, before like a bodybuilding competition or any elite athletes, you may need to get a tune-up a little more often during Mm -hmm. times like that. But um, that, that basically, you know, I leave that in the hands of my patients. Like I never force frequency on my patients, I basically put it in their hands and say, Hey, you know, now that you know what quote normal for you feels like now you can make that call on when you need, when you need me to fix you. And I'll go as, as far as to say, Hey, like have your spouse or a friend check your hips, check your leg length. And I'll show them how to do that in my office. So they kind of know objectively when to come in because you can't base visits on symptoms either because typically symptoms happen after the fact, after something's been subluxated or your hips have been misaligned or anything in your body's been subluxated for a while. Okay. Gotcha. That makes sense. So, um, yeah. And kids really love adjusting too. uh, adjusting the cervical helps the immune system. Um, and you know, kids don't need it, um, as often generally, unless they're coming on with a cold or so forth, but it's important to have kids on some sort of uh, wellness as well and, and to educate them about health alongside that too totally totally are there any other like really good you know bang for your buck quote-unquote uh you know preventative proactive measures you can take i know you and mike are both really big into cold therapy and jumping in that horse trough like dunk tank you got there (laughs) um so like what what are some other things that you're really trying to implement on a regular basis uh resistance training 100 percent um nutrition you know the basics movement uh, not just hitting the gym and eating well, but just making sure you're moving every day, um, clocking in those steps. Um, you know, you don't have to stretch a ton. I think that's a little bit overrated, maybe a little foam rolling if you're having some muscle spasms in certain areas. But I think honestly, my, the big, the biggies are food and fitness in mm. general, totally. resistance training, especially as you get older is important and we lose that growth hormone and we lose that ability to, you know, building muscle as easily as it was in our twenties. Absolutely. So speaking on nutrition and resistance training, I, I kind of want to pick your brain there. Um, last time I saw you, you were freaking shredded. looked like you're about to step on a bodybuilding stage. Um, <laughs> and you were doing a lot of OMAD, I believe at the time, but you've played around quite a bit with, you know, higher vegetation, meals and then go more towards carnivore for a while. So I kind of want to just flush that out and see what you discovered, you know, over the different manipulations and experiments you made and kind of where you're landing as your norm now. Right. 
So during that time, yeah, that was pretty much my peak on an experiment on OMAD. And the reason that I did that experiment was basically to see as a female, if I could put on and maintain lean muscle mass while um, remaining keto adapted and within a short feeding window. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there was just a lot going on. And so I, I started it, uh, gosh, was it last year? I mean, I don't even know what date it is. Yeah, <laughs> COVID. <think> so so, uh, <laughs> so I, I began the experiment. I wasn't sure how long it was going to go on for, but I'm pretty hard-headed when I put my mind to something. And it was a pretty interesting journey for sure. Um, I had been keto adapted and practicing intermittent fasting for seven years before this. So it wasn't like it was that difficult to really mm-hmm. kind of dive into it. So I wouldn't suggest anyone just go head on into OMAD without being you know, keto adapted at least and um, having a little intermittent fasting under their belt because mm-hmm. it is extreme. So, and it also mimics kind of what our ancestors did when they were hunting and gathering, especially during months when they didn't have a lot of, you know, food and, until they would hunt and, and catch something and then they would feast, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I did that. I, w- I was uh, clocking in maybe, uh, I think, 1,700 to sometimes 2,000 calories within a two hour window, which some people can't believe, but trust me, I can eat. And I'm about 120 pounds. What had happened, sort of the long story during that journey, and especially during the time that you had seen me, was my body fat got down to probably about 7%, which is extremely low for me and, and females in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, I sort of knew, okay, like this is just not a comfortable place for me. And if I was going to hop on stage, great, but that just wasn't what I was planning on and and not it just wasn't the look that I wanted on a daily okay because um plus hormonally it's probably not good for a female to be at that body percentage I had lost my cycle for about three months Mm -hmm. so um what I had found was that I was able to maintain my strength and my body was very efficient at burning body fat for fuel but my hormones started to uh, become affected around that time because I, at that point was probably about 11 months into it. And so very shortly after, um, I began to open up my, my feeding window. And during that time, Robert, I was eating very carnivore meals because it was really the only way I I could clock in enough calories. And my meats were quite fatty, um, within a short feeding window. Okay. So I would eat, I would like break my fast. Oops, sorry. Do you know what your calories were at the onset of that before the 11 months was, I mean, were you starting at about 2000 or over that? Um, probably like I've never really been um, a calorie counter or a macro counter. I've always had high protein, just generally looking at like my plate, but um, it's like nothing changed except for my feeding window. Um, however, I, you know, I was tracking macros for a little bit um, in the beginning of OMAD to make sure I was getting in enough calories, mm-hmm. but um I would have to say like, it was probably about the same. It was just that um, what my conclusion is with that is my body wasn't able to metabolize that amount of protein, which is about 150 grams of protein within a short feeding window. And I think that for some reason, it almost acted like it was in a deficit. Like my body just couldn't metabolize everything within that short feeding window every single day. It was just very restrictive. Mm-hmm. So um, plus being carnivore, I mean, I wasn't having any berries. And so it was very um, keto adapted. And um, as soon as I started 
um, adding some fruit and veg in season, not a lot. Like I still to this day don't eat a lot of veg and a lot of fruit, but just in season and um, opening up my window to two meals. So I was kind of splitting those, um, the protein in half because oftentimes I'll have like something in the morning and we can get into that later. But, um, and I save most of my calories for like maybe my a six hour window or eight hour window. Um, my body does much better with that. And um, soon after that, my hormones got back on track and um, I felt a little bit softer, which was good. It was good to have a more body fat. I'd have to say I'm about 11% right now, just cause I know my body so well. Um, but yeah, the 7% was like, woo, you, you could see every muscle yeah. popping out of my, my body and it was pretty cool. And, um, you know, maybe a great approach for someone who is bodybuilding, who's not, you know, eating carbs. They don't do well with carbs because it's very possible to get that lean. I, I just proved it, right? And to maintain your strength. But again, I mean, being that low in body fat, no matter how you do it, is is going to be hard on your hormones if you're doing it for a long period of time. Um, but I came out of it. And um, now currently what I'm doing is not OMAD, um, rarely unless I travel, which I don't travel much lately. Right. But um, I, I generally have like two substantial meals a day. I'll have keto brick in the morning, which I love. Oh, awesome. I have one next to me. If we were on video, I would have showed it. But like, I, I love it. And especially on days I'm heading into the chiropractic office because I'm there all day. I'll clock in maybe about, um, say like, what, 500 calories. So maybe half a brick or sometimes a third of a brick. And then... Um, I'm good until like sometimes like four, you know, and then I just, I sometimes aren't even hungry by then, but I do eat because I do want to, you know, eat enough protein in a day. So it really saves me on those days. But on days that I'm not working in office for that long, um, I'll usually break my fast around like one and um, I'll have two substantial meals, but I'm a really dirty faster. So when I say fast, like it doesn't mean I'm really like not eating any calories. Like I, again, will have like the keto brick or a little MCT powder or some collagen. Like I'm very, I try to do it very intuitively. Um, and if I'm hungry, I'll eat. If I'm not, then I'll just push it. I don't really use a lot of apps. I don't test ketones. I don't, I don't stress myself out that way because I find that, Every day can be different, and as you get older, it's different, and per season, it's different, and I really just try to listen to my body, and it's not easy. It's it's definitely an art, and journaling really helps with kind of keeping you on track with that. Totally, totally agree. I think, you know, I, I track a lot, but I'm, I'm only tracking that religiously when I'm in a contest prep or doing some type of experiment so I can really hone on the data, but <laughs> having a period of time where you're just allowing yourself to be intuitive and instinctive and actually listen to the feedback your body's giving you, I think is is so very important and key. And it's amazing mm -hmm. how people, they've, they've lost touch of that relationship with their body. Like they don't know what the biofeedback is telling them. But when you can really right. hone in on that, I mean, you can know, you can pinpoint, you know, how your body is going to respond to X, Y, or Z manipulation and pretty much the the time that it is going to respond. Like it's it's powerful. It's empowering. Very, very powerful. And our bodies are so smart innately. And if you just give it a chance, it will tell you what it needs. Totally agree. So when you were doing the OMADs, you did that for an about 11-month period, and mm -hmm. you left calories more or less constant throughout. Were you having that larger meal, uh, you know, was there like a pretty big window between that and when you had trained, or was it around your training time? 
So this is what's so interesting is honestly, um, again, I didn't count my macros every single day. It was just initially. So I knew what, how much I was, I knew that I was eating enough protein. So I would like weigh my protein. Right. Mm -hmm. But, uh, so to answer the question about the calories, it wasn't consistent. Um, I knew I was probably around 2000, but it could have been a bit more some days and it could have been a bit less some days. Um, which is kind of how I go how I roll now. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like natural calorie cycling, natural carb cycling, natural protein cycling, et cetera. Um, so, uh, sorry, I kind of got off on a little rim there. Uh, the basically, um, Oh my God, Robert, I'm kind of going back to our question. What was the the question again? (laughs) With regard I go to these tangents and I'm like, uh, <laughs> I want to answer your question. With regard um, to uh, like training, would you have that large meal pretty close to your training? Oh, yes. Window? Sorry about that. I just heard like this rooster <laughs> in the background. So um, I would train fasted mm-hmm. and um, I felt great. Like this is the thing. It's like I would go in and at that time I was just on fire. My brain, my body, I felt great. I had energy. So I would train in the morning and then I would eat my meal like between five to seven. And so um, during OMAD, it it just didn't matter if I trained in the afternoon, in the morning, there was just, I, I basically would just do it. Mm-hmm. And I was training five days a week still, right? The only thing I had changed was just my, um, I wasn't doing as much jogging. So I do, I still love to jog. So I'd kind of brought it down to a walk because I figured, you know, that's a little bit kind of too much. Right, too, right. You know, I'm being restrictive with my nutrition. I shouldn't be doing, you know, overly stressing my body like that. Um, nowadays though, um, again, there, there's no rhyme or reason. Like if I'm having a first meal around like two or three, um, generally I still try to train in the morning, but there's some days I work long, so I have to train after work and I absolutely have something to eat before I train, but it's never my largest meal because I just don't like lifting after eating a huge meal. I don't feel good. Um, it, it just doesn't make me feel good. I just do enough to kind of get me like to maintain my strength. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just me though. So like if, if, if you prefer to eat a lot before you lift and it makes you, and you're lifting so much more weight than me, for example, like I say people have to do what makes them feel the most strength during a workout. Um, me personally, I like to eat my largest meal at night, um, like around five or six, but, um, some people really like their largest meals in the morning. It just makes them feel more, more like the most energetic, um, strongest in the gym. And I say, again, it's just a very personal thing you know? Um, but yeah, I just, during the OMAD times, I, I didn't really even think about it. I just trained and I, um, yeah, it just, when when I lost so much body fat, it just kind of happened like within a week. And then I remember Mike looking at me like, wow, I mean, Deanna, you're really, you're really lean, like (laughs) probably time to put some fat on. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I know you're right. Like I was seeing it, but it was just so crazy how, how the whole process Right? Yeah, it's it is crazy. I mean, like I've gone through so many preps now. It's it's just cool to to see the evolution of your body through the months. You know, as as things change, um, and it, it's cool to see like people doing it from an OMAD perspective. I mean, this last competition prep that I did as calories, I started out doing two meals a day, which is what I'm typically doing in the off season as well. But then when calories got lower, and I was tracking everything, but when they got lower, I switched to the OMAD 
because I feel mm-hmm. like from a psychological standpoint, it's much better and more satisfying to have one large meal that actually fills you up and it's, leaves you wanting nothing than like multiple smaller meals where you're always just craving a little something more and it's not there to have. Um, so I and think to having the deficit. Yeah, yeah, and I think the the OMAD approach is is great for that for that reason. Uh, but then also like if you're doing it from a keto adapted standpoint, you know your your ketones Ooh. are going to be ramped up, like everything's just going to be heightened because you're in a you know a deficit. You're you're not having near as much feeding frequency, so your level of keto adaptation is going to be deeper, and you're right. in a, a more anti catabolic state because ketones are very anti catabolic by default. Um, right. So I feel like that explains why you didn't lose any muscle, didn't lose any strength. It it does make sense that you would have lost your cycle when you get down that lean. I mean, seven percent for a female is no joke. It's no joke, and you know my hair. Like I I I had some hair loss, which I was like at that point, like oh god no, like mm-hmm. I can't have this. This is you can't lose my hair. So that that's when I was like, this is stopping like now. Yeah, <laughs> and it, you know it 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 which was scary. I um even though I had kind of made the changes, um, like immediately it, my hair was, I was still losing hair for like a month. Mm-hmm. I was like kind of getting nervous because I'm usually so intuitive and finally it stopped and it, I, I was, you know, taking a lot of collagen and just making sure that I was just being good to my body and, um, nothing restrictive and not a lot of intermittent fasting. I mean, nothing crazy, not like binge eating or anything like that. I was very in control. Um, but I just had to kind of like, uh, trust the process of of the change, and my body hopped back on track, and thankfully, and uh, normalized within probably about two two months. Mm-hmm. It took, but yeah, I was thinking about that too uh, when you said it was a lot easier um, to do the OMAD when you're getting pretty close to your competition, and that is when it's perfect because OMADs, if you can master it. It's amazing because it's like having a Thanksgiving meal and it creates great satiety. Mm-hmm. Um, the moment you eat, I mean, if you're a foodie, like I, I love food. The moment I eat, I'm just hungry. Like Absolutely. I just get hungry all day long, right? So it's like if you are able to kind of go that long and maybe even do like a dirty um, fasting, like a dirty OMAD approach where, you know, a, a few berries here or there or um, like a little keto break here or there, you know, in the morning to kind of get you by and save most of your calories for that OMAD meal, if you're prepping for the competition, it'll keep you into a deficit and it's not going to be just like so hard. Like so many bodybuilders are like, oh my gosh, I'm cutting now. I'm on a horrible diet. I'm miserable. It's like, not like that. It's such a different experience as long as you're eating the right foods. I think that's the key. But I think you can get away with having more carbs when you have a short feeding window. Yeah, I would agree for sure. I think, you know, especially in the context of being in a deficit, the the importance of the bioavailability of the food is absolutely paramount. If you're in a limited caloric intake, you're in a deficit, you're, you're training for competition or whatever it may be, you know, it's the, the more absorption you can get out of the food you're eating is, is absolutely critical. That's why I've got a hard time with all these, you know, bro dieters that are, you know, bragging 